Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, Mountaineers, real and fake, to this week's conversation here at Feel and Film. I really am patched despite my voice, and uh, I'm your guide for week number two of our winter survival coverage. And with me, hoping to get off this wild theatrical mountain known as Vertical Limit, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I'm here and not a frog, so at least one of us is himself. Patrick may or may not actually be Patrick. That could be an imposter. The folks listening may never know, Patrick, (laughs) unless you say something that is so distinctly you know, reminiscent of you. Can you, you believe can it? Wow. It's the frog named Walkin', the Walkin' Frog. Yep. Is that better? <laughs> yeah. Yep. No doubt about it. That's yeah. Patrick. <laughs> so we're we're a day delayed, and obviously that's due to me being a little bit sick over the weekend. So thank you, listeners, for being patient. Um, I'm going to hit the cough button as much as possible if I start going a little off the rails. So just bear with us. Enjoy the conversation as we are uh, just a couple of days away from Aaron heading out to Utah for Sundance, and we wanted to make sure to get him one final film before he does for the next week or so. So here's your spoiler warning for Vertical Limit 2000. It's a little bit beyond the, hey, you haven't seen this. You need to go see it. You can't go see it. It's not in the theater. But it is on AMC+, Plus. plus you can check it out, VOD, if you want to do so. If you just enjoy the conversation, we're glad to have you. All right, Aaron, first up, some trivia. This is fun. We picked cliffhanger and vertical limit because we wanted some winter survival movies and as i am prone to do i dig into the imdb trivia for most movie rewatches that i that i check out and the first bit of trivia that popped up was that vertical limit script was originally intended to be a sequel to cliffhanger and i just kind of asked myself how's that for serendipity that's pretty fantastic so, I mean, I'm going to ask you the obvious question. Can you see some of the character story elements and, and whatnot really confirming this in your in your watch of, of, uh, of this movie? Yeah, absolutely. I think specifically, you know, the opening scene or the what would I would call the hook for the movie, dramatically speaking, the whole relationship that is existing between a brother and a sister definitely mirrors in a way what we see happen in Cliffhanger with the two main characters in that film. And I was just kind of blown away when you told me that I was like, wow, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, also from the perspective of this is an action movie on a mountain, (laughs) Uh, very different action movies. This one does not have any thieves or FBI agents, but it does have somewhat ridiculous action and helicopters so there there are some you know similarities there as well <laughs> yeah i feel like the the opening tragedy the opening hook that you mentioned is inspired by cliffhanger i don't know that it was written in there but i think it was something like hey cliffhanger work let's start with this and but i also see even from a character standpoint you've got the two kind of goobery guys that go along on the on the mountainous track that really have no nonsense. The first time we meet them, they're buck naked, enjoying the sun of the of the uh, the camp and whatnot. And so, I think the wildness of this is definitely in the same vein as Cliffhanger. I was reading Roger Ebert's reviews of both Cliffhanger and this, and he gave them both three stars for similar reasons. Just this big action, lots of 
you know, popcorn fun, even if you're going to suspend your disbelief. I know a lot of the criticism for this movie after the fact is the fact that of any mountaineering movie, this is the least accurate and probably most egregious. I don't want to get into any of that about why this works or doesn't work, because I think as we've had these conversations before, movies like this, we have to think of them as self-contained. We're not talking about free solo. We're not talking about the accuracy of what this means. We're taking things that make sense or that are somewhat believable on the big screen and amplifying them. And I, I, I kind of use the in past conversations. I was talking about Mission Impossible with some uh, with some friends of mine. And I said, the thing that makes Mission Impossible chuck down a notch for me is the kind of the portrayal of the Internet. And so in like the early 90s, when this movie comes out, you have this like user net and you've got Ethan emailing Job at 314 or 314 at Job.com. And it's really confusing. And to me, those are things that when you're trying to interpret something that's very early on in its life which the internet was back in like 96, I think is when it was released. It really does sort of date a movie like that. It doesn't make it bad by any means. It's still a great movie. But I contrast that with movies like Hackers, which go in the extreme opposite direction where they're like, listen, we don't even understand about anything about Hackers. We have this idea. So let's just amplify that and let's just make it completely crazy. Or even the net sort of prophesies some of the things that we are used to now. Online ordering, chat rooms, things like that. So I think when I look at Vertical Limit, I'm willing to forgive it a little bit for the fact that it's taking a setting and taking an idea and putting it in a theatrical format. We're not trying to get technical accuracy. This is not a biopic about something that happened back in the, the middle uh, of the 90s rather just a fun adventure movie. And so I, I enjoy it for that. Um, I did enjoy the opening hook. Wanted to get your opinion. Of the two, you've got similar things that happen. You've got folks that are hanging on ropes and someone falls and dies. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the extent of the similarities. Of the two, which one hooked you more in terms of getting you into the into the movie? Well, I mean, I think that, first of all, the opening scene in Cliffhanger is shot better. I think overall, the way it's constructed, the way we get into knowing the characters, I think they're introduced in a better way, a more thorough way. Perhaps because we just watched it, though, also could play into this a little bit, whereas I felt like in this one, it really was a copy. I mean, it feels like a copy when you're watching it, if you have recently seen Cliffhanger or have any knowledge of what takes place. That being said... It was also incredibly obvious, whereas in Cliffhanger, I felt the tension like I didn't know for sure what was going to take place. I could assume, but there's a moment where she's moving across the line and nothing is happening. And there's a tension to that where you're like, OK, this is creepy. I wouldn't do that. I'm scared before anything goes wrong. And in this one, it's just immediately once it happens, like. Somebody falls and then boom, there they are. And they're just dangling. And it's just a bunch of screaming and arguing until the inevitable happens. Right. And I think the different the difference is a, in a huge difference in the in the two films and the two scenes is that one is an accident. One is Gabe not being able to hold her up. His hand slips. He tries. He gives it his all. It is 
gravity and there is nothing you can do about that, right? Whereas in this one, it's a matter of a choice being made. And that is a much different and more dramatic type of block between humans, I think. Yeah. So it's funny because I actually would have bought a more, I think, uh, antagonistic type of relationship between Annie and Peter than we actually got. I, I, I honestly would have felt like they should have a more... I, I know that the film tells us they haven't seen each other before they get together on K2. I think that's what we're supposed to believe. But it, it just doesn't really feel like she's harboring the kind of grudge that we see how harboring in Cliffhanger. And yet that was, I don't mean to be insensitive people listening. That was just a girlfriend. <laughs> this is your dad, right? And so, and you did it. You, you cut the rope. Like, I think it's a great scene. I think it's a little off in execution of playing up how big of a deal that actually would have been. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think from a dramatic standpoint, I think it, it catapults their tension better in my opinion because as we talked about in the cliffhanger episode you've got the tension that sort of resolves itself because they now have a common threat which is uh which is Quailin. and it seemed like they were almost resolved from the jump when when stallone's character goes all the way up to the top of the cliff to get that first case like it's tucker and walker are are buds again not like buds buds but they they have a they have a common enemy but there's never one of the criticisms I had was that there was never any like real resolution of them getting through this. I think vertical limit allows for Peter and Annie to go through some of that grief. And while I don't disagree that it didn't feel as heavy as Tucker and Walker, I think the path to get them to resolution as cliche as it was felt a little bit more honest, a little bit more authentic and it took more time in my opinion i think you've got a sense of like yep by the end of the movie it didn't feel like their resolution was sort of wrapped up in a nice bow trauma was something that helped them both and you could see which i appreciate how much peter cared about annie and how he in his first connection with her his first kind of uh when he when he met up with her again a couple of years later he he made that comment, you know, dad would be proud and you see her face just go to smile and to a, just a straight face. Clearly, she was still dealing with it. But I think because of the way that he pursued her from a brotherly standpoint, the way in which he did everything he could um, to the point where there's a moment when he's talking to her on the walkie talkie just before they go up that five hour uh, trek to, to get to get rescued. I think that there's some authenticity there that makes me believe their relationship found resolution in a a more organic way than Tucker and Walker. It definitely doesn't uh, ignore the fact that that opening sequence was a little CGI heavy. There were times when I definitely saw a little green screen action. And something I, I've noticed in some of my rewatches of this movie is that I don't know if it's the cinematographer or if it's the director's choice, but there are a couple of times when there's a little bit of matter-of-factness to some of the tragedy. So at the end of the scene, if you, if you want to compare the opening scenes, you've got you've got uh, the girl falling, the girlfriend falling, and it's slow-mo, and you see her face, and oh my gosh, it's it's so terrible. Here, you've got... And then it cuts. And then it cuts. We never, we never see 
the aftermath. Right. And you contrast that with this one where you have cut, <laughs> silence, <laughs> just <poof. laughs> It was jarring. I, know. I was like, oh my God. But that, but that <laughs> echoes later on too. Like when, when, uh, when Peter is, you know, he's cut to two years later and he's got the, <laughs> it's so, it's so funny because it's just so jarring. He finishes up his photography shoot and they're going back to the helicopter and his little buddy trips and falls and there's that nasty like accident where his leg gets caught between two rocks and his body goes one way and his leg just stays where it's at and i'm thinking is the director like related to the director of robocop and total recall where he just wants to just make us go oh because within like the first 10 minutes i'm getting like i don't need to see this i don't need to see like the the tragedy of mountaineering there's another moment that tyler and i actually i went oh like I audibly gasped and I was like, did you see that? And I paused it and I rewound it when Ben Mendelsohn's character, when he and his partner get blown to smithereens. Oh gosh, yeah. It's like they turn into they, a red they, mist. They, they it happens really fast, but it's like just, whoosh. And they just literally <laughs> vaporize. And I was like, did I just yeah. see that? Oh my god! would not have seen that. If this was not in a high definition, like I don't ever recall no. in any of my past watches seeing the the mist of destruction happening with these two individuals. But it was like, whoosh, like they just went to like this fantasy land of blood and, and nasty uh, courtesy of the liquid nitrogen. And I just I think that that is sort of a telltale sign of what the energy level of this movie is, which is. I think the director and company just didn't want to pull any punches. They said, we want to show, we want to show pain. We want to show a little agony here, but it just felt totally weird because it was almost as if like that first beyond the, beyond the jarring death of their dad, that next scene where that dude has to get uh medevaced to K2 base camp. It, it was portrayed in a way that felt really dramatic and I'm like, he just tripped over his backpack. Like, that's what happened. It wasn't like he was being attacked by a bear or something. He just kind of went, oops, and rolled and fell into rocks and basically turned his leg 90 degrees. It just felt weird. And there were a couple other times when I was like, I think you're just, that's that's not a good means to an end. If we want to get Peter to, to K2, we can just have them go and then say, hey, I didn't know my, you know, are you guys going to K2? I need to pick up some extra supplies. Yeah, my, my sister's there. Perfect. You don't need to have some dude do that. It just it just felt weird to me. And I think that that moment, along with um, one of the one of the liquid nitrogen scenes where you had the guy who spills the liquid nitrogen and he slips and he starts flying down the mountain to the point where he's hanging from the cliff. The way that starts is very much like nonchalant. But the way it finishes is this like really dramatic thing that leads to a big action set piece. And I, I think that's where I had issues is that the setups for these things didn't match the the conclusions. Like they weren't consistent. So you had this nonchalant setup to an overly dramatic conclusion that led to something else. And so I had some some issues with that. I just real quick. I don't think it's liquid nitrogen. It's nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin. Sorry, it's liquid. Yeah, sorry. Okay, I, you're right. I was like, I don't think these are the same. I, do, I think it means they're what you think it means. Nitroglycerin. You're right. 
yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not like they're just trying to make you know smoke. <laughs> a fog they can do that at K two with that high elevation. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. They've got they've got snow for that. But yeah, nitro <laughs> okay. is what. It, yeah, it's nitroglycerin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for the clarification. You're right. They're not trying to freeze stuff besides their faces. Um, so, but to, to your other question about this, real quick, before we get off of Annie and Peter's relationship. I don't even know if you said this out loud or not, but in our note document, you have a question here about this, or you have a note about it, providing them an opportunity to resolve their conflict of their dad's death. That's not a word. Dad's dad's Nitroglycerin. death. Wow. Nitroglycerin. How did I, how did I even, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. Right. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to use the wrong words too. Uh, so you feel better about yourself, but I don't think this does anything to resolve their dad's death. And it's, one of those contrivances that movies have that you just have to accept because ultimately this is an action movie and there's a drama put into it to try and get you to buy into some stakes, but it's an action movie first and foremost, in my opinion, like that's what it wants to do is just get us to the set pieces. And so at the end of this, when they're paying their respects to those who've died on the mountain and he has, done all he can do to attempt to save her life. He never makes any different decision, in my opinion, that would alter the past. The only thing I could buy is if there was some sort of really, truly touching acting moment between the two of them, which would tell us that Annie now realizes Listen, I have been missing my brother my entire life, and I've wasted all this time in this relationship because I've harbored a grudge, and I don't want to waste more time because I want to have a close relationship with you. I think I would have bought it more, but it just it doesn't really feel like what happens here would necessarily undo the trauma that they had before, in my yeah, opinion. I don't I don't disagree with that i think it's it's an indirect way to get to what the movie's trying to do which is the fact that peter is the movie portrays him as sacrificing and doing whatever he can to save annie's life he's essentially becoming the guy who is going to rescue yes three people mathematically but ultimately just her and i think that shows her that he wasn't just doing what was in her mind an idea that was good based off of his dad's opinion. Like, I think she wanted the best case scenario, which is all three of us can survive. And because he had to make that sacrifice, I think his willingness to go up there for her only knowing that mathematically it seemed ludicrous and you've got nitro on your back and all this different stuff. I think that that's what the movie's trying to get us to, to understand, which is his sacrifice, his willingness to go up, I don't think I don't think she ever thought that he'd be like, nah, nah, bro, I'm good. You made your own bed. You can lie in it. But I think to the point that he goes as far as he does, I think that that puts her in a position to say, I understand that you weren't just thinking about the weight. You weren't just mindlessly listening to our dad. You actually made a conscious decision, just like you're making a conscious decision now. It's muddy. But I think that's what the movie is trying to get us to go. And that's why I put a little bit more stock in it than Tucker and Walker because they don't. And granted, Cliffhanger isn't really built to have those like tender moments between two strong mountaineer guys. Um, 
it just doesn't seem totally like that would work. But at the same time, it's also what I think the movie lacks, which is I never got that conversation between the two of them besides like a little fist bump at the end when they're waiting for the military guys to rescue them via helicopter. With Peter and Annie, it felt a little bit more honest, even if it wasn't as clean or as authentic. It is tropey for sure. But I think within the confines of a movie like this, that you're sort of accepting that it works for me. Yeah, I mean, it worked enough. I also just had to suspend disbelief in the very beginning because to me, it's a pretty clear and obvious thing. And I find it very hard to believe that the character of Annie would go on to continue climbing after what occurred, but not only to continue climbing and become one of the most renowned guides on these massive world peaks, but never come to the understanding that what her dad said to do had to happen. Like the level of experience that she is supposed to have to me indicates a person that would never, ever question that decision in the first place. And so at some point she should have come to that right right, by now. And so it's, it's kind of like a, yeah, yeah, really? I don't know. But anyway, it, it, it's good servicing of stakes to get our guy, Chris O'Donnell, onto the mountain with a whole other crew of weird teammates to go try and save Weird teammates is a great way to describe that. This plot, man, I I was just not prepared for (laughs) some of the things. Well, let's talk about the villain for me, or I guess the antagonist. He's not really a villain, but maybe he is. Bill Paxton, I I think no matter what he's in, I'm going to really dig whatever character he plays. I got very much weird science vibes from him. The older brother, Chet, just this kind of like, I'm not, I, I'm no nonsense. I, I love the way that he's described. Um, I can't remember by who, but I think it's, maybe it's Tom McLaren. But anyway, he is, he's described as, you know, kind, nice, you know, your typical billionaire. And of course, the underlying tones are that he's a selfish, egotistical, get what he wants at any cost kind of guy, as the movie shows him to be. And I, I, I like movies that, again, with the premise that you're going to suspend some disbelief, you're going to tone down a little bit of the seriousness of characters. I like the mustache twirling way that he comes across. I love how he manipulates and says to uh, that was Tom that he was talking to. Sorry. Yeah. I love how he talks to Tom and says, hey, Tom, you know. She's not going to just pull up her skirt and pull her panties down for you. I mean, this is going to be a challenge. Or he's like, you know, I trust Tom until you don't get what you want. And then you just start manipulating him verbally. And that takes place entirely throughout the movie. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's just good villain character development. It's not very deep, but it gets you hating the guy. So by the time he gets his comeuppance with Wick, I think it just it plays itself out in a way that you're like fist bumping at the end going, yes, go down, you whatever. And I, and I think that that's what makes I mean, it, it's successful in that regard. Yeah, I think back on this and I don't feel like I appreciated Bill Paxton enough when he was around and didn't talk about him enough and didn't praise him enough because I can't think of a single movie that we've covered and that I've watched that has Bill Paxton in it where Bill Paxton isn't a memorable standout part of that movie. I mean, he is phenomenal, man, at just at doing it all. And I was thinking back, I was like, was this his only villain role? And I'm sure it wasn't. But he's able to do 
pretty much everything, right? Like he he has such a range. He can be this bad guy and totally 100% believable as just a complete SOB that you hate, like you were talking about. He can be the guy in Twisters. He can be the hero and you're rooting for him, you know, and he can be the crazy guy that you're still sad about and that goes nuts in Aliens. Like he's so much fun. And I really enjoyed his portrayal of this character because he made me hate him so yeah. much. And to me, that that's the good acting, right? The, my piece of trivia for this movie is that, did you know that this is the movie that features the word dexamethasone the most times in history? <laughs> no, it probably isn't. But, but it might be. It probably is. Uh, it, that was such a, like complicated part of the film to get across i think but they did a really good job of expressing it because it was such a big deal to the plot it's hard when you take those three of your main characters and you shove them in this crevice and underground and they can't move they can't do anything like how do you create drama between them when you're going to move to that section and i think the the way bill paxton does a lot of his acting in the scenes underground is with his facial expressions and his body yeah. language, you know, looking at Tom with, with just a grossly, you know, dastardly intent to which Annie is clearly picking up on that vibe, but she's getting sicker and he's trying to play off that. He's like getting a little bit sick. Cause he's just trying to bide his time and bide his time. And, you know, I think, there's more suspension of disbelief with his character too, because once we eventually learn what really happened, that he got stuck on a mountain previously in a snowstorm and barely escaped with his life due to a rescue attempt. And that's when he stole the dexamethasone from Wick's wife in order to survive. <laughs> I have a hard time believing that anybody, I don't care what your ego is, that anybody would be like, oh yeah, cool. Let's push through a storm again it'll be fine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Logic. Those people probably exist. He probably is. I, I guess that's the point is they're showing us a character that is that level of ego that he is going to ignore what just happened to him previously yeah. and believe, well, that can't possibly happen yeah. again. So I guess as I'm speaking about it, maybe it's actually a strength of the character uh, as he's depicted. Yeah, I think uh, because I, it was hard for me to be like, come on, man. I was mad. I was very mad at him, Patrick. I was like, please, <laughs> <laughs> don't do this. The way that Tom looked so Tom looked so sad. And I before I knew Tom was going to die, I knew Tom was going to die when he gave in to the pushing that Vaughn was doing. And I was like, Just don't do it, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And he gave in and I was like, it's not going to end well for this guy. And that's a tragedy. Yeah. And, and, and I get I, it helps really sell how much you hate this dude for all of the lives that he was responsible for being lost. And I think that there's a sense of sociopath energy with him. Great way to put it. Because of the <laughs> fact what, that yeah. I begin to believe that he believes the lies that he's telling himself. So when he talks about when I think when Tom says, we're going back, I'm not doing this for a publicity stunt. He goes, do you think that's why I'm doing it? This is the mountain he he appeals to Tom's like adventurous. Son. He tells him what he wants exactly. to hear. And I think in some ways he is sort of portraying a sense of like, I believe this. I believe that this mountain can be conquered, that we can get here, that we can do this. 
And when he gets to the point of them being trapped and the Dex is the thing that they're talking about, the fact that he says we got to stick to a schedule like there's there's some there's some real like smarts to what he's talking about. Like, I don't know that he ever intends to kill Tom. Like, I don't think that that's like, you know, this is it's just going to happen. I think he intends for Tom to die and he's going to try to convince Annie that it's a sacrifice worth making for them to survive. But it's interesting when you find out that he's been through this before. I pick up on that in a rewatch by going, oh, my gosh, of course, he knows what to do and how to do this. Of course, he doesn't make it, you know, the way it does. You know, he doesn't he doesn't look at the situation and be like, I don't know what to do. He knows what to do because he's done it before. But I think that going down that path previously and then eventually getting to this point, I think he's less inclined to believe in altruism. Like, I don't ever think in any given point, I never think that he is willing to sacrifice himself by any means. But the moment that he looks at Tom and Tom says, are you going to kill me? And he goes, yes. And he just does it. That's the point where I'm like, you have completely gone around the bend in terms of being like, I need to survive. It's all about me. And to an extent, I think that the movie hints at doesn't execute very well, but it hints at this idea of what would you do if you had to survive and you had to sacrifice someone, I think the movie Alive does something like that. I mean, there, there are movies and TV shows that kind of examine this stuff in a better sense. But I think there's a hint at that here where when we see him finally get his comeuppance, it's because we spent so much time with him almost never feeling a sense of altruism for anybody else. Like, I think he wants Annie to survive, but I think he's like, well, if she has to go too, I'm okay with that. Well, that's the thing. I don't think he... I guess I wouldn't say he wants her to survive. I would say he is completely indifferent to anybody and everybody other than himself. And yeah. the the difference in what you're talking about, and it's a great comparison to make between a movie like Alive or Society of the Snow, same story, but any kind of survival story, is one, the speed of which the problem is accelerating here is massive like they are on a ticking clock of a number of like hours not days and weeks hours and every bit of resource that is wasted on someone that isn't going to make it truly accelerates the chances that none of you are going to make it and i think the big reason we don't get behind him and find it him as an antagonist and as a villain here is because there's no remorse for right. it. You know, if the group came together and he pitched this idea that Tom is dying and he's not going to make it out, so we need to split up his dexamethasone between the two of us in order for us to both have a chance at survival. In a calm, in an understanding way of like, we are literally just trying to figure out how to survive and I hate it, and I'm going to kill him in a humane way, and it sucks, and it hurts me, and I'm sad, and I'm crying over it, but this has to happen because it's the only way that two out of the three of us can survive. Totally different movie, totally different story, right? It's all because he is willing to kill. And and I think that's why the backstory with Wick is important mm -hmm. here, is because it tells us that 
He's done this before. Yeah. And I think also that helps me believe when he straight up murders Tom, because when you have been responsible for someone else losing their life, I, I don't know this, but I have a very good feeling that like anything in life, it makes the next time easier. Right. And I think that's what we see happen with him down there in the yeah. crevice. I, you mentioned Montgomery Wick, and I think that I'm on the fence about this character. I think Scott Glenn's great. I like him. I mean, as an actor, yeah, as a performer, aces. yeah. <laughs> Montgomery Wick, I think, as a character, is interesting in that he's fun. I think he has some of the best lines, and the way that Scott Glenn delivers those lines. <laughs> when you're up there, Mr. Garrett, you're not dying you're dead you know just these little like ominous things he comes across as the guy that knows the mountain which he does but if i had to rewrite this script you could eliminate him completely because i think the big moment for him it for me as an as an audience as, as someone watching this is when he cuts the cable and he sacrifices himself with vaughn and i think that if you had put peter in that situation where he did the exact same thing, you would have gotten the same effect without this revenge subplot. To me, that didn't seem to work because while it gave us a backstory on what Vaughn is capable of, I don't know that it made a significant impact on how I felt about him knowing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, he serves a dual purpose, right? He serves as the guy to get you up the mountain, but also the element to provide more drama yeah and to fulfill the duty of a sacrificial lamb essentially like he has to exist or else somebody that we care about is going to die and we don't care about wick enough to like be sad when he cuts that rope like i mean we're i mean we're like oh you know i mean like it's like but you know he his wife's dead he clearly was ready to go himself and willing to do that in order to get his revenge. Different story if it's Annie or Peter that has to kill themselves, or even like Monique, someone that we see as having done absolutely no wrong and having like a heart of gold right. kind of thing. Yeah. I put this in a situation where if you had sacrificed Peter, I think that would have made her relationship with him more impactful. This idea that in order to in order to save her, he would have had to cut the rope with him and wick or in the case of saving all the good people he cuts the rope uh not wick but uh vaughn cutting the rope and letting vaughn go just like he did with their dad i think that that would have made the story a little bit more connectable and it would have put us in a position where we would have cared more about annie and peter so again i like the character of um of Montgomery Wick. I just think he feels a little bit thrown in there for expertise. And you could have created that with somebody. You could have created the six-man team without having someone that has to be the uber expert, right? Or without the dead wife subplot, as you're pointing out, like he could have still been the expert that helped him get up the mountain, who has experienced loss and who doesn't want to climb anymore and doesn't like people, but gives in to help because he understands the importance and is begged to do so and then ends up having to sacrifice himself for these essentially strangers because it's the right thing right. to do, which would then somewhat kind of 
complement what happened with her dad, showing that, oh, it's not just because he's your dad. It's actually like what anybody in their right mind would have done would cut the rope because that's the only way to survive. Yeah. Even this guy that you don't have that attachment to. I think you make a fantastic point because it would have put both he and Vaughn on opposite ends of the spectrum. Two people that we didn't know at the beginning of the movie that we find out a little bit more as the movie goes on and who do the polar opposite thing for the sake of people that they don't really know that well. And I think that it exactly. just it, it would work yes. a lot better. And I didn't get the heartstrings tugged when I saw his wife in her frozen cough sarcophagus is that what no, it was? That, was that was it was i mean she was frozen into the side of the mountain and i think when the explosion went off it knocked her like free yeah and like it revealed her that's why he hadn't been able to find her it didn't turn her into like previously. red dust like those other two guys yeah no my goodness gracious man yeah all right so the the big thing before we close shop here i want to talk about the the action because i know that this is what makes this movie go there's a lot of stuff happening i i really liked the cinematography in this movie more than cliffhanger i think just from a landscape standpoint i think it's a beautiful um vantage point don't know that i love the whole pakistani you know let's wake up the (laughs) the indians or whatever i thought that was kind of a goofy subplot but i get it's what you needed to get the nitro from um i i think it honestly i think all this stuff was an excuse to get the director to explode more so maybe michael bay was having some consulting on a movie like this, but I, I really liked the, the, the cinematography. I liked some of the, the big, like the avalanche, any, anytime there was an avalanche, I thought was fantastic because there was a moment, I think when one of the, one of the brothers was, he had just like rescued himself. He was like, yeah, and he's got the rope and he's giving it to uh, Monique. And then you hear the, um, the avalanche and he just he's exposed. He's totally exposed and he gets thrown off the mountain like, ah, oh, like that to me. My 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 heart was like in my throat. I was like, oh, my gosh, like I couldn't to imagining myself being in that vulnerable spot and then being like, I can't do anything. It was a it was a really solid action moment for me. What about you? Well, first of all, the nitroglycerin. Listen, I, this is the stupidest thing that I've ever seen in an action movie maybe ever like literally like i the idea of bringing multiple cans of nitroglycerin strapped to their backs to try and blow a hole to reveal the crevice the first time that can goes off patrick that explosion you're talking about <laughs> and it like causes an avalanche and rocks the entire valley or whatever of this mountain i was like Yeah, so we're going to tactically use that to get a little hole open so we can pull them out. No, they're dead. Like, if we use this, they're going to die. How do you think you're going to control an explosion on a mountain (laughs) with a can of not? It's insane. It is absolutely insane. And, I mean, there was a point. Now, I enjoyed this movie so much that I got to the point of so dumb it's funny. Like, Okay, whatever, I'm in because it's fun, but it is really stupid. So, um, but it does, it provides for some really fun moments. Like, like we talked about that one that you just talked about. Um, it, you know, it taught, we, it provides for the, the dusting of Ben Mendelssohn, who was, it was really weird when he showed up, by the way. I couldn't believe he was in this movie. I was like, wow, like <laughs> this was pre, like Ben Mendelssohn becoming a thing. Um, the, 
helicopter ascent when they're dropping off and it almost chops Monique into bits (laughs) because you can only go so high. I thought that was a little goofy shot looking, but also incredibly realistic because that's the reality is your, your, your altitude matters in helicopter uh, and that air, the thinness of the air. Right. And so that is a very realistic thing where the point was, and I don't know that it was very well clarified in the movie because my son was a little confused as to why they were just taking the helicopter and i was like no they're trying to speed up their getting to the the people that are stuck so the the higher they get on the mountain from the helicopter the less they got to climb right that was the point of it but that was a really good scene there is a moment where chris o'donnell goes full nathan drake laura croft and literally jumps across a freaking the the you know open ground or right. whatever with ice axes yeah. i'm always gonna <laughs> i don't care he looks dumb it's chris o'donnell but like whatever i'm here yeah. for that uh and yeah i mean i i liked i, I love the visual of and the creativity of what they did to mark where they were underground i didn't realize what they were doing i was like because you know, they, they got a flare and they were like trying to figure out how to use it. And then it shows them go to Tom's body and start cutting into his abdomen. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And then they're pushing a bag of blood up. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't understand what they were doing it for until it happened. Yeah. And so when it blows up and coats the ground in blood in this gigantic circle, I was, I mean, I was genuinely both surprised and awed. And I was like, that is so smart and so brilliant of a way to like make it know, like using your resources. Um, I thought that was really, yeah. really cool. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with any of that. And yes, the, the nitro is probably the most bombastic and ridiculous thing in the movie, but it's also the thing that causes the most fun visually. <laughs> I think we can both agree to that, that anytime you can explode something that's not naturally done, in order to benefit whatever the cause is on a mountain, I think that's pretty fantastic. So lots of fun. I don't know that I saw this in the movie theater. I think I did, but I do remember enjoying enjoying that uh, in my in my latest rewatch. Okay, one final question, and then I have a question uh, for you that you mentioned offline. Um, would Quaylen survive on this adventure, or would he die? I mean, he would probably, he's pretty resourceful. I I think he would die because he's not a climber. So the difference here and the reason that the cinematography is more enticing, and I agree with you wholeheartedly about that, is that Cliffhanger is set in America on some mountains, but the mountains are more of a roadblock for people with guns. Yeah, This is a movie about climbing on K2, which is one of the, three or four highest peaks in the world. Like this is a distinct film about actual mountaineering in which the elements and the mountain itself is the danger more than like a dude with a rifle. So I think that's why it's shot in a way that like captures yeah. kind of that majesty and the the danger of that. So um, yeah, I don't think Quaylen would make it. Yeah. Don't. I think, I think he and it'd be, it'd be interesting to see him. Put him and Put, Vaughn down in a oh crevice together and gosh, see who comes out. Yeah. That'd be I, fun. <laughs> no names. No names. We're on open frequency. <laughs> All right. You mentioned something to me offline and I wanted to recall. Uh, 
you you said you literally yelled at the television about some math problem. And I didn't know what that was all about, but I was really intrigued. So I'm going to hand the mic over to you before we finish and let you tell that story. <laughs> well, no, I, so Tyler and I were watching it, right? And I just, I had made this point earlier in the movie and I said something about math. This is so dumb. There's three people up there that need to be rescued and they're, and we're sending a team. And so Tyler kind of argued back with me at the time about numbers and who was alive versus who was dead. And, and it made a little more sense. So at the end of the film, I was like, okay, let's take stock of the math because we had a party of either five or six go up with Vaughn in the first place. I want it. So it's Tom Vaughn, Annie, I think five, two others, the Pakistani, uh, you talking about the rescue team guy. or Vaughn's people? No, before the rescue oh, okay. team. The original group that went up with Vaughn was like five gotcha, people. Yeah. So we lost two. So we're at negative two. <laughs> By the end of the movie, the only person remaining from that group of five is Annie. So we are minus four. We sent six people to get three people. So our maximum possible save could have been Really, only two people, because Tom was never going to make it, right? But we sent six to get two, but of the six that we sent up there, we only got two back. So we ended up, Patrick, on the ground at base camp. When this whole stupid thing is over, there are three people alive, and there are like nine people that are dead. If we were going to have three people alive at the end... We should have never sent the rescue team because there would have been six people at, alive at the end of the movie. And that's just simple math. And that was my whole point was this is stupid and wasteful of life. And we should not be celebrating their success because all we ended up is negative. Oh, three. well, you know, I think you're spot on. And I think Ed Vestures, I think, who played himself in the movie, <laughs> was asked to go up. And he was like, you're asking us to make this kind of sacrifice. The math. He essentially said the math doesn't work. And I don't disagree. But hey, we got resolution between Peter and Annie, and that's all that matters. And <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry, you nine people that had to give your life for them Make to up, like right. figure out their stupid differences. <laughs> anyway, that was my rant on math. Also, never second. fly majestic air because that didn't <laughs> have a good, you know, the maiden flight. <laughs> with the <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever Vaughn's. <laughs> yeah, no. So. Also, I was curious because I think Vaughn's second in command who didn't go up, I think it was like German or whatever. He said Vaughn's people are willing to pay a hundred grand for anybody. That... 500 grand per person. Like, okay. So does that mean that, that it was 500 K that he offered per person and, and almost nobody, nobody was going to yeah. go. That's how serious. Well, and I wonder because he offered that after all but Wick eventually committed so I'm like, I hope that they were going to come through with the other people that had already committed. Like, don't don't renege because somebody said, OK, I'll volunteer after you've offered that. Like the ones that that came in before, give it to him as well, even though Peter was the only one that survived. I could have sworn there was a moment where they returned, maybe. And he said, we're still going to honor that and take care of them. Maybe I'm I think so. I, mean, I can't remember. I, I I think there was a moment where he made a comment at the end that was like, a, we know my guy screwed up and I'm going to do what I can to make it at least somewhat. Easier. I mean, if you're willing to shell out but, almost a quarter of a million dollars or over a quarter of a million dollars, no, 
uh, sorry, almost 2.5, over $2.5 million, you're doing something. And I think, I want to say Vaughn was in the oil industry. Like, I think that's how he made his money. I think that's some of the backstory we got. So clearly he was not hurting for, for finances. But uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll just... Has there ever been a positively portrayed oil baron in the film? No. Like anybody who ever made their money from oil that the movies are like, yeah, that's a really good dude. Look at all the awesome things he did in philanthropy with that maybe, money. Yeah, guy, stand up. Maybe man. Jed Clampett from <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies, but that's... that may be the closest <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Feeling Film. We're off next week because Aaron's traveling and enjoying tons of great movies. So take a break with us. Come back and enjoy the next great conversation. Aaron, thanks for this one. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.